On March 11, 2020, the World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 infection a pandemic. We're currently in the throes of that global infection and the big question everyone is racing to ask and answer, is the risk of ischemic stroke higher in patients with COVID-19 infection? Now, we spoke to both doctors based in the United States, Adnan Qureshi from the University of Missouri Department of Neurology and Vishal Yani from the Crichton University School of Medicine, Emmanuel Medical Center, Omaha, Nebraska, who is the corresponding author for the article, Management of Acute Ischemic Stroke in Patients with COVID-19 Infection, Report of an International Panel published in International Journal of Stroke. Now, this important paper is from a team of doctors on the front line from the USA, Egypt, Turkey, Germany, Mexico, Iran, Italy, Taiwan, Pakistan, Poland, France, China, and more, and presents a comprehensive set of practice implications in a single document for clinicians caring for adult patients with acute ischemic stroke with confirmed or suspected COVID-19 infection. I'm Carmen Lev Jenkins, Managing Editor of the International Journal of Stroke, and we are proud to be the flagship publication of the World Stroke Organization. In this podcast, we cover management of acute stroke in patients with COVID-19 infection, types of COVID-19 infected stroke patients, sepsis and infection comorbidities, transmission risk during evaluation of acute stroke patients, complication of isolation and consent, and overall management plans for acute stroke patients. And we also touch on the use of aspirin, P2Y12 receptor inhibitors and heparin. And you'll find all of this content in the article that's been published in the International Journal of Stroke. So my name is Adnan Qureshi. I'm one of the stroke intervention physicians um, uh, that is actually affiliated with the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri in United States. My name is Vishal Jani and I am a consultant neurointerventionist. I'm a neurologist and a stroke neurologist affiliated with Creighton University Medical Center and I'm also a system stroke medical director for stroke services in the state of Nebraska for CHI Health. So this international panel actually uh, took the task to look at 18 different facets as it relates to the management of acute ischemic stroke patients that may have direct relevance with COVID-19 infection and the current pandemic. And in those 18 aspects of stroke care, a total of 41 conclusions could be derived and translated into practice implications. So in the end, we had 18 facets of acute stroke care that were addressed, and we concluded with 41 practice implications that were incorporated into this guidelines paper. And Vishal, would you like to speak on where do we go to now with COVID-19 patients? How do we manage them in stroke? You know, it's a very interesting question. Uh, if I have to be brief in the answer, uh, we do not know completely how to approach these patients completely. Um, but this particular paper gives a highlight about this moving target of COVID-19, its systemic implication, primarily targeting CNS and especially focused on stroke and endovascular care. I think Dr. Qureshi and every single author has summarized all the detail, specifically pinpointing every single aspect of stroke care 
the challenges and the potential implication in COVID-19 patients. You know, what is it going to look like now continuing practicing stroke in hospitals where a stroke patient is suspected of or possibly is has been diagnosed with COVID-19 but also is asymptomatic of stroke? What happens in that environment? What is, what's been suggested so far? So we don't really know exactly how we're going to continue. You know, we're on the front lines. It's happening every day by day. People are trying to work out what they're doing to stop healthcare professionals obviously also catching COVID-19. I guess if I was a healthcare professional and I was listening to this, I'd like to know how do I operate in this environment? Absolutely. So the... Overall, uh, I think perspective boils down to uh, how do we handle this patient who are potentially asymptomatic and potentially undiagnosed and face the stroke symptom uh, and how we can protect our first-line uh, responders, frontline uh, physicians and nursing staff and uh, protocol modification where we have the strongest evidence in the history of medicine to salvage the brain tissue. Overall, I think this will focus on how we can optimize the telemedical services in the emergency department, um, how we can optimize early diagnosis in early screening of stroke patients in setting where we do not know the COVID-19 uh, diagnosis status of the patient. Uh, and as the studies are suggesting that uh, testing for all, you know, you might have seen the NEJM uh, paper recently uh, reflecting that uh, asymptomatic patients or individual uh, have uh, quite a bit of a chance of being COVID positive in highly dense population. I think that the, the institutions are faced with a unique challenge when it comes down to acute stroke patients. I think there's a clear recognition that there are going to be patients that are actually going to have COVID-19 infection. Now, some of them may not develop any symptoms, so there is no way to tell, uh, but nonetheless, they're equally infective as compared to those who actually do have symptoms. The second challenge is that they may have some symptoms, but it's so hard to tell because they may have alteration in level of consciousness. They may have aphasia, neglect. So their historical account may not be accurate anymore. And then you have a challenge that you may not have their family or next of kin available who could actually fill in these gaps. So now one option is that you assume every patient that you're seeing with acute stroke is COVID-19 positive. And that is the safest way to go forward. However, it's not practical. So then the challenge becomes is how best can we identify those patients? One of the problems is that the current testing methodology requires taking a nasopharyngeal swab and actually doing uh, polymerase chain reaction to identify the, the RNA of COVID-19 or the coronavirus. But that itself can take somewhere between three hours at the best case scenario to three days. So you cannot use that in acute stroke settings. 
So the second best surrogate people have been advocating for and clearly needs to be validated is that when we do a head CT scan, which is pretty standard across the globe for any acute stroke patient, we incorporate chest CT scan as part of the same protocol. And it seems like a high number of patients who have COVID-19 infection actually have abnormalities that can be detected on the chest CT scan. So it may actually be a rapid way of identifying who should actually undergo the isolation protocol and in whom there may be a low suspicion of COVID-19 infection. Now, some of these uh, recommendations, obviously, are just using the best information we have now. And it is quite possible that as we move forward, perhaps more information may become available and the protocols that are recommended may have to be modified accordingly. And so that's talking about managing patients as they come through and, you know, have the, obviously have the COVID-19 and how to protect frontline workers. I mean, the other implications that we've talked about in this paper that you've published is about uh, all the different comorbidities that would exist alongside COVID-19 with stroke. So, you know, you've got multiple organ failure, etc. Would you like to talk us through that and what the comorbidities look like at this stage in time? I mean, I know we don't have all the research in, but what's that looking like now? I think that if a patient actually has COVID-19 infection and let's say acute ischemic stroke, there are several differences that have to be considered. Uh, one of them obviously is that um, the timeliness care obviously may have to be delayed because uh, personal protective equipment may have to be used and all the imaging that is done may actually have to be done under different circumstances to ensure there is no transmission to the healthcare workers and the next patients. Interestingly, it seems like in COVID-19 patients who actually have severe disease, the outcome may be determined by the multi-organ failure that they have and may not necessarily be dependent on what stroke treatment is provided. So that obviously has to be considered as well, that whether the stroke treatment would actually change the outcome that may be determined more by the multi-organ failure rather than stroke itself. Now, more studies would have to be required what is the role of intravenous thrombolysis in these patients. But these patients seem to have uh, hyperagreability. So there is uh, potentially a hypercoagulable state that recent studies are trying to identify. Uh, they also have hepatic dysfunction and TPA, which is the intravenous drug that we use, is cleared by the liver. So whether TPA clearance from the body may actually be impaired as a consequence of hepatic dysfunction is something that needs to be considered. Now, these patients also uh, have uh, a abnormalities in the coagulation profile. So whether there are certain coagulation parameters and some of the new parameters that actually are gaining importance are fibrin D-dimers and perhaps some bedside test like thromboelastography that can actually give you a sense of the coagulation profile rapidly and perhaps a more global profile assessment than what individual uh, tests such as prothrombin time and international normalized ratio can provide. So what is going to be the role of these tests in acute stroke assessment and the decision-making of thrombolysis. 
Over the last three years, mechanical thrombectomy has clearly evolved as a major component of acute stroke management or acute ischemic stroke management. Now that actually poses very unique considerations in somebody who is actually COVID-19 infection positive. Obviously an invasive procedure has much higher risk of transmission for people who are actually performing the procedure. So there are considerable delays that can be expected in both interinstitutional transfers in terms of actually preparing the angiographic suite, a procedure can be done in the most sterile settings with actually maximum protection against transmission. And these challenges may actually have implication on how timely the procedure can be performed. And we all know that the longer time it takes to perform mechanical thrombectomy, the longer time it takes to start the thrombectomy, the longer time it takes to complete the thrombectomy, all of it are actually chipping away from the benefit of the procedure itself. So there is actually a thought process, at least in China, when they were doing protocols for acute myocardial infarction where percutaneous intervention obviously still is a big option, that they were preferentially trying to defer intervention in favor of intravenous medication because they felt that the medication can be administered quickly, it can be administered in an isolated setting, and may actually be preferentially or maybe preferred in patients who actually have active COVID-19 infection. Now, obviously, all of that needs to be validated, and uh, the conclusions and the practice implications that were provided uh, took the best information we have at this point and drawing a balance where you have a benefit from a procedure uh, that actually has to be counterbalanced with the risk uh, to the medical practitioners, but also in the unique circumstances of COVID-19 infection, the benefits that we actually saw in clinical trials that were seen in non-COVID infected patients, whether they can truly be replicated in this patient population. Several of the members uh, of the, the panel actually are team leaders for the COVID response or actually are members of the COVID-19 response team in the hospitals. So we were very fortunate to have a perspective, not just from their acute stroke expertise, uh, but actually from their expertise and what's being done in the hospital, uh, how to prevent exposure to COVID-19. So I think we were uh, fortunate to have a panel that actually had expertise that actually spread not just on stroke, but actually on COVID-19 infection as well. Okay. So I completely agree with Dr. Qureshi. Uh, the biggest challenge with COVID-19 is kind of built-in delay at every segment of stroke care and our inability to predict and pick the right candidate uh, to the national standard uh, eligibility. Now, the challenge overall as a neurointerventionist and stroke colleagues we have, uh, our stroke volume has gone higher. Uh, we are not seeing the same results with our thrombectomy that we usually see in our patient cohort. Um, we don't understand the neuroinvasive potential of COVID-19 at present. And on top of that, there are so many uh, you know, uh, challenges that you will see when patient has gone into multi-system failure. Like Dr. Koreshi mentioned, 
hepatic dysfunction. So we just do not know what happens when you administer DPF. We are unable to take the next patient while we are doing our first case because the turnaround time for the angiography suite is profoundly delayed. Sometimes if we have basilar or, uh, you know, uh, if we need to use MRI, the institution has placed restrictions that we can't use MRI on a regular basis because it takes one hour to reset the MRI rules. The challenges are around our inability to understand what COVID-19 is doing to this patient so we can deliver the promise or the detail we tell a family member that what we are going to expect in the future after successful thrombectomy and along with the delay that comes at every segment of care when we are assuming these patients are most likely going to be COVID positive uh, in our care. Are you feeling like the best thing to happen is to treat patients very quickly and get them home as quickly as possible out of the potential COVID-19 environment? Or are you saying that you'll need to continue patients with standard care, with the, the you know, the regular hospital length of time and that that's, you're just going to have to work around that as best you can. Is that what you're saying? In short term, I think we have to work around how we can mold ourselves with built-in delay in this patient care. But on top of that, we also have to keep a very close eye on understanding that when some patient who has gone through this system uh, multi-system failure, are we truly achieving the result we are promising the family? Yeah, sure. So you, it's interesting that we moved on to some imaging discussion because I was thinking, I mean, I've been looking into the negative pressure carrier isolators and I wanted to ask you a few questions about that equipment. So what is a negative pressure carrier isolator and are they very common and are they going to be a useful tool in the fight to keep stroke patients safe from COVID-19 and to manage stroke patients that have COVID-19? I think uh, Carmen is asking a very important question. Uh, I think if you look at acute treatment for stroke, I think that there is three groups of people. Uh, there is one group of patients where based on their clinical and imaging characteristics, uh, a large proportion number benefit from let's say mechanical thrombectomy. Uh, then there is a, another group where a smaller proportion will benefit, but nonetheless there is evidence of benefit in that group of patients. And obviously then there is the third group where decision-making is easy because our clinical trials or whatever studies we have, you don't really have a lot of benefit to be expected. Now the biggest challenge will become in the middle group or the intermediate group, where now the, the balance between benefit and risk is somewhat shifted because you have additional parameters to consider when you have COVID-19 infection, which may dictate the outcome of patient regardless of what you do with the stroke. Uh, you have these delays that uh, Dr. Jani was mentioning that take away from the benefit of the procedure. So I think that, um, uh, yes, if patients uh, who are, are known to have COVID-19 infection, uh, you, we will be expecting to see more selectives uh, or a, a greater burden on who to select 
and who to perform the procedure on uh, so that we actually are not performing procedures where uh, we are actually exposing uh, ourselves and the people in the angiographic suits or people who are involved in the acute stroke care to the risk of transmission, while the expected benefit may be lower than once we had expected when we saw these procedures being performed in non-COVID infected patients. What about tools like the negative pressure carrier isolator? I mean, how useful are they and are they common? I think that's a very important question. What can be done to actually prevent transmission? So the ideal situation would be that you'd have a totally separate path for patients who have COVID-19 infection. So they have a separate place where they're evaluated in the emergency department. They go to a separate set of CT scanners, go to a separate center of angiographic units. Um, but practically, you know, that may not be possible. Now, if we're going to take these patients to the CT scan, which may be used in the next 30 minutes for another patient, people have been advocating, and particularly in South Korea, as the professor Lee explained, negative uh, pressure carriers, isolators have been used frequently. But these are actually carriers that are made of non-porous covering that actually totally engulf or encapsulate the patient. And you have, they have their own airflow coming in and being extracted through a closed system. So you can just place them in the CT scanner or another imaging modality. And while you, there's no risk of transmission, but you can still get the test that you're looking for done very easily. Um, so I think that while in uh, other countries, this practice has not picked up, but if the COVID-19 pandemic continues to increase uh, in countries like United States, uh, it may be quite possible that the use of these negative pressure carrier isolators may be seen more and more uh, just to ensure that the transmission risk is minimized uh, to the maximum. Another thing is... Uh, these uh, negative pressure rooms, I mean, these rooms were actually developed for uh, tuberculosis in particular and can be used for any airborne disease. Um, however, uh, angiographic suites and um, in most of the intensive care unit beds that actually are used for stroke patients are not uh, under negative pressure. The concept of negative pressure is the air that's being generated in the room is being kept in the room and not actually are not actually directed outside the room to kind of expose other people. There is actually considerations now that some of the angiographic suites in various hospitals, depending upon the volume of COVID-19 infected patients that they're seeing, may be reconstructed in a way that they actually do become negative pressure rooms. Why is there renal impairment with subsequent AKI with COVID patients? Um, about renal impairment. Why is that important? Because all acute stroke patients in most hospitals would actually automatically get a CT angiogram and a CT perfusion, which means they will be getting intravenous contrast. Now, contrast-induced nephropathy has been a consideration for a long time. However, it seems that in acute stroke patients, perhaps the risk is low enough that it is reasonable to just go ahead and do 
this diagnostic test without actually being or because without actually worrying about the risk of acute kidney injury but covid-19 patients seem to actually have a much higher chance of acute kidney injury and may actually have a higher mortality when they actually develop acute kidney injury so now the consideration has to be rethought or this whole process has to be rethought that in a covid-19 patient who already has renal impairment if they develop acute kidney injury they are more likely to actually die from the disease is it actually worth giving them intravenous contrast and i think that where we are heading is that perhaps we may actually have to make a triage decision on patient to patient basis we may actually have to get a full renal profile done so that we can actually determine whether this is a patient who we really need this information is it the patient really want to do mechanical thrombectomy and if not so then perhaps we can avoid doing tests that actually require intravenous contrast and what about sepsis as a complication so it's interesting that um, patients who have covid-19 infection uh, they seem to be in a state where they're more vulnerable to secondary infections and if you look at the cause of death in patient with covid-19 infection um, multi organ failure is an important cause but a lot of them are actually succumbing to secondary infections so other bacterial or viral infections are actually playing a major role in um, actually determining the outcome of patient with covid-19 infection so some of the effect may not be directly related to the covid-19 infection or the virus but it is the secondary infections that are actually taking a toll and manifesting itself as full blown sepsis and multi organ failure what do you think the plans are to manage that one of the big questions that is actually emerging now is it seems like there is a state of hypercoagulability in these patients and there are new guidelines that are coming in uh, that actually are talking about anticoagulation in these patients and using different intensities of anticoagulation based on the elevation in fibrin d dimers whether that actually will change the outcome of these patients actually have uh, perhaps some implications for thrombotic phenomena which actually includes the cute ischemic stroke i think that is something the future study may have to address uh, but i think that is a big question right now that whether we are dealing with a prothrombotic state uh, whether fibrin d dimers actually can identify the severity of the prothrombotic state and whether the prothrombotic state can actually be modified by using intravenous anticoagulation i'll ask vishal a question now i just wanted to know can we go back a little bit Adnan, you'd already spoken about mm -hmm. that there'd be no visitors in the hospitals and what that looks like. So I was wondering if we could go back to talking about consent. How do we manage consent in this brave new world that we're facing? So, Carmen, this brings to a very uh, challenging situation where uh, the fundamental question, I think, becomes when we are offering uh, evidence-based care, it is very important for a family to understand that what we are offering and what to expect so informed consent is extremely important in our patient care now historically speaking 
uh, by default, having a stroke puts us at a disadvantage that we are not starting on a great ground where we can get consent all the time. So speech difficulties, uh, nobody was around and patient was team summit outside. We are unaware about uh, their uh, baseline uh, details. Uh, and those are the challenges that you will see in regular stroke care, that we are unable to understand what situation patient was in before they came to the hospital. Now we are adding a second layer of barrier that out of those patients where the family is available and somebody is able to help us understand what's going on with the patient are not allowed to come to the hospital. Now in that setting, when the time is vital and we actually are running on our timer clock, and if we are expecting to learn everything from the family or the relatives to obtain a consent or to offer a, pro offer a proper treatment, we actually are unable to connect with the family in real time because of this COVID-19 situation. When family is not allowed to come in, where they cannot sit in front of me and see in my eyes when I explain to them how challenging this journey is going to be or what's going to happen to their loved one. Uh, when the family is asked not to come to the hospital, these small elements of problem uh, are very difficult to handle when we have time sensitive. It is very common that because of no visitor policy, we are facing significant challenge, not only to obtain consent, but even if we are able to reach the family member to make them understand exactly what to expect. So now that brings us to the question how we can optimize this thing in a setting where we are unable to face or see the family. We have optimized electronic consent documentation, and we also have reached out to EMS uh, to make sure that at least the contact details are appropriately handy for us when we really need to offer some life-saving measures. So we have a significant problem. No family member is allowed to come in the hospital. They need to be told that you have to stay home why we need consent and overall it's a very challenging situation but you know we have optimized the best we can and as of now you know i think uh, despite all the challenges most of the physicians actually are able to get hold of the family member at least in our practice mechanical thrombectomy often has respiratory complications how much worse is this in the face of COVID 19 I think you're bringing out a very really important question. Um, I think that there are implications for, uh, because COVID-19 infection itself compromises the respiratory status. Uh, now, patients who actually get a mechanical thrombectomy uh, often require mechanical ventilation, intubation and mechanical ventilation. Um, obviously, there has been data suggesting that the use of intubation and mechanical ventilation itself may worsen the outcome of patients who are getting mechanical thrombectomy. So most practitioners try to avoid 
using uh, intubation and mechanical ventilation as part of the thrombectomy process unless it's absolutely necessary. Obviously, in the face of COVID-19 infection, more people will actually be intubated um, and mechanically ventilated because the parameters have changed. Whether that actually shifts the overall outcome or the success of the procedure towards a negative value, I think that's an important consideration. I think in the, the panel, uh, the, the practice implication the panel highlighted was that really we have to anticipate a greater number of patients will require intubation and mechanical ventilation or mechanical thrombectomy. Uh, the best we can do is to minimize the negative aspects of intubation and mechanical thrombectomy by optimizing systemic blood pressure, uh, the oxygen status, the carbon dioxide status, uh, so that at least we can minimize whatever risk has been attributed to intubation and mechanical ventilation in the setting of thrombectomy. Uh, I think that the other thing is that, um, uh, which actually does relate to consenting processes is that uh, we don't really have data on intravenous thrombolysis and mechanical thrombectomy in COVID-19 patients. So the risk-benefit ratio that we are extrapolating from non-COVID-19 COVID infected patients may not necessarily apply in this setting. And uh, whether that is a, uh, a concern that has to be addressed as part of the consenting process or decision-making process in general, uh, I think that that probably is something uh, we probably will have to address on a case-to-case -case basis. So can you touch on the use of aspirin, P2Y12, receptor inhibitors, and heparin, basically anticoagulants, um, in context of COVID-19? I think that's a very good question, and um, the answer is that we do not know. I think that, uh, uh, as we just talked about, that there is an emerging role for anticoagulation, uh, given uh, the hypercoagulable state that has been identified in COVID-19 patients. Whether that actually translates into acute ischemic stroke is something that we probably have to see as we move forward. So whether that use will actually increase because of the hypercoagulability state that COVID-19 infection is bringing with it, I think it's gonna be important to find out the role of antiblated agents and anticoagulation in patients who actually have uh, acute ischemic stroke and COVID-19 infection. I mean, antiplatelet agents have become the mainstay in the acute period of ischemic stroke, and intravenous anticoagulation is very infrequently used. Now, there is a new consideration, um, as uh, evident by the prothrombotic state that is seen with COVID-19 infection, uh, the elevation in fibrin D-dimers may actually be used as an indication to start intravenous anticoagulation. So now, uh, perhaps these patients may require intravenous anticoagulation to minimize, I guess, treat the hypercoagulability of COVID-19 infection. Where that balance will be, I think that needs to be determined. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, my comment on, uh, on this thing is, uh, as COVID-19 brings the pro-inflammatory and pro-coagulant state uh, at a next level, uh, we may have to rethink our strategy uh, of not using anticoagulation, which is what we are taught traditionally, that we too should not be using anticoagulation, has to be rethought. This is just evolutionary 
thinking process, allowing stroke physicians to keep this thing in mind that this actually may have to be considered based on inflammatory markers. So this is one of the avenues we should be looking into. But as of now, I don't have any major uh, data to support uh, what's going to happen in the future. You've been listening to a podcast interview with Drs. Adnan Qureshi from the University of Missouri Department of Neurology and Vishal Yani from the Crichton University School of Medicine, Emmanuel Medical Center, Omaha, Nebraska, who is the corresponding author for the article, Management of Acute Ischemic Stroke in Patients with COVID-19 Infection, Report of an International Panel. I'm Carmen Leif Jenkins, Managing Editor of the International Journal of Stroke, and we are proud to be the flagship publication of the World Stroke Organization. Please do consider becoming a member.